For all your fantasy football needs, check out the Ringer Fantasy Football Show with me, Danny Kelly, along with Danny Heifetz and Craig Horlbeck. That's the Ringer Fantasy Football Show on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. On April 3rd, the Walt Disney Company will be hosting its annual meeting of shareholders, and we need you all to vote for your board. It's important you vote only for Disney's 12 nominees using the white proxy card. Do not vote for the Tryon Group or Blackwell's nominees. Learn more at VoteDisney.com. This episode is brought to you by UGG. Y'all know UGG is a brand that athletes wear all the time in the tunnel and on travel days. Well, I bet you think UGG season is only during the colder months of the year. Oh, contraire. You're wrong. You need to check out the latest spring drop from UGG. They have everything from sandals to clogs. I like the sandals. UGG has you covered for your next spring adventure. Shop the Golden Collection at UGG.com. It is Monday, August 28th. Not a great week for the writer's strike. Talks haven't been going well, so the frustrated studio heads decided to publicize their latest offer. They hoped it would show the larger WGA membership that they had sweetened the offer significantly and that those members would then put pressure on the Guild's negotiating committee. It's still too early to say if that strategy worked. Guild leadership called it a tactic to, quote, divide us. And there was a lot of backlash on social media, but the WGA is more than 11,000 members, and many of them likely saw that new offer as a big improvement over the initial one. We'll get into that today. Meanwhile, things are getting really bad around town. The fall TV season basically gone for scripted shows. Companies are firing and furloughing more people. Last week, Warner Brothers pushed Dune Part 2 to 2024. Other movies have been pushed, and I expect more delays will be announced after Labor Day fall as well as spring and summer movies. And that impacts not just the studios, but the theater owners, the whole industry that is dependent on summer movies still recovering from COVID. The Emmys were pushed. The fall festivals are going to be a mostly star-free affair. Amazon unrenewed a couple shows last week, The Peripheral and A League of Their Own, citing the strike. Disney Plus scrapped a big Spiderwick Chronicles show that had already been shot. And the rank-and-file workers in the industry are really starting to hurt. There are food banks, fundraisers, A friend of mine who's a camera operator left L.A. and who knows if he'll be back. On Friday, a member of the IATSE union for below-the-line workers actually sent a death threat to the Guild. According to a source of mine, he threatened to blow up a bunch of studio people. As of last night, he hadn't been arrested. So yeah, it's bad. This will end at some point, but nobody seems to know how, certainly not these studio heads who have consistently underestimated the willingness of the writers and actors to continue shutting down the industry. So today, we've got Lucas Shaw from Bloomberg, and it's a strike update. Where we stand, what the issues still are, and when this whole mess might actually end. From The Ringer and Puck, I'm Matt Bellany, and this is The Town. All right, we are here with Lucas Shaw of Bloomberg. Lucas, welcome back. Great to be here. Fresh off uh, a weekend in Long Beach. Oh, nice. I saw you went to Dave Matthews. Is that a first for you? You big DMB guy? No, it's the first time. I <laughs> uh, have not been to a Dave Matthews show since the 90s. I'm sure they're all uh, at peak form. It was a really good show as someone who recognized, I think, one song, and then I recognized both of the covers. Okay. Well, Half My Feed was at Metallica this weekend, and Half My Feed was at Culture Club at Hollywood Bowl. So big, big weekend of music in L.A. None of my feed was at either of those shows. <laughs> you guys are so old. <laughs> All right. On that depressing note, let's get to something even more depressing. The strike. Not a great week. 
terrible week. Yeah, pretty much blew up. Right now, it's all up in the air as to whether the studios and the writers are even going to meet again. Maybe they will move on to the actors. Maybe they will come back to the writers. Uh, Maybe they'll just say, you know what? We'll talk to you in 2024. The big issues that are still outstanding after the studios released the revised proposal. Artificial intelligence. The writers want the studios to guarantee they won't use scripts to train these large language model programs. And the second one is minimum staffing. The studios have made some concessions on that front. But the two additional writers, you know, getting writers on the shows during production is a give. But the writers say that's not enough and that it doesn't cover all the writers that they wanted to be covered. Then the transparency issue, which is a big one. The studios have agreed to give a little bit more transparency, let the guild see who is watching those shows. But they're saying, first of all, you can't share that with the writers, so the writers themselves will not know how their shows are doing. And they're saying that they're not going to pay the writers anymore. So this success metric where you get paid more if your show is a hit is not actually going to happen. They're saying we will negotiate with you in three years based on the data we give you now. And a lot of writers say, well, wait a second. We have the most leverage we will ever have right now when there are two strikes. Why would we agree to kick the can for three years when we will have almost no leverage and the studios can come back to us and say, yeah, we're we're not doing that. So big issues still open. I want your take on whether, first of all, the decision to release the proposal is backfiring, not backfiring. How do you see that playing out so far? If you trust social media, which we don't, which we we do not, it's backfiring, right? You have a lot of writers piling on. I'm not sure, right? Like the, the goal was, I think, to kind of divide and conquer. Even though the studios won't quite say it that way, they wanted to put this out there and have a lot of members of the guild say, this seems pretty reasonable and put pressure on their leadership to negotiate and give on some of the issues. And that hasn't happened. That's not a secret, though. That's how guild negotiations, union negotiations work. I mean, that they did that in 2007, 2008, where at a certain point, the high-earning showrunners were like, guys, enough's enough. Let's get a deal done. And I think that the studios were frustrated that they thought they made this great offer with a bunch of concessions and nobody was seeing it because all the information to the membership was coming through this intermediary, the negotiating committee. Question is whether that circumvents labor law. There's been some media coverage of whether going directly to the press and i.e. reaching the membership is circumventing the designated leaders of the negotiation. I'm not sure. I talked to one lawyer who said, I, I don't know about that in this situation. Um, I don't, it doesn't, it's not a great look, but the impact may have been that, yeah, these 11,000 members are at least getting to see what is on the table. I'm not a legal expert. Why would that be illegal to release the terms? Because National Labor Relations Board regulations say that when a guild or a union designates representatives to negotiate on its behalf, you have to deal with those representatives. You cannot circumvent them and try to go to others in the guild to try to make a deal there. Even though they've done this before and it wasn't deemed illegal then, what's different? Well, I don't think, I don't know that it was even challenged. Right. But there have been some legal experts that have been quoted in the media saying this could potentially be a violation of these rules. 
I, I don't know the answer to that. I know that it's been raised. And, and I, again, it's happened in the past and the studios have dozens of labor lawyers that they are consulting before they do anything. So I got to feel they were, at least they felt confident in doing this or they figured that the guild wouldn't challenge them, but who knows? But I don't know the answer on whether it ultimately backfires. And I don't think that's knowable right now. I mean, if the goal is to play the long game here and to at least have this churning out there in the waters, we do know, I know the guild does not want us to say this, but we do know there is dissent amongst these writers. There are a lot of writers who feel, especially on the minimum staffing issue, we've talked about this, that that is not the hill to die on, that you know, the, it should be the discretion of the individual showrunner, not a mandate from the guild. It is pretty crazy that the studio on that issue, the studios have basically said, you guys decide. And that's not okay. <laughs> no, because they feel that in practice that there would be pressure put on these writers, especially first-time showrunners, where the studio executive says, yeah, you can have that if you want. However, the budget needs to be here, so you're going to have to cut elsewhere. And my position on that is that that stuff happens anyways, and that if it's in the discretion of the showrunner, and that is in the guild agreement, that the showrunner will be able to stand up for him or herself and say, no, no, I want this. But that's not good enough for the guild. And there are a lot of showrunners out there who, you know, are afraid to say that publicly, but say it in private to people like you and me or to their peers that they don't want that. Now, we should say that 97 percent of the guild voted for the agenda that included minimum staffing. So certainly that's a big endorsement of what the negotiating committee is doing. But I think by releasing this and letting the writers see that the studios have come down on some of these issues for minimum staffing and have agreed to putting writers on productions, that that will ultimately weaken the resolve. I'm not sure that's going to happen, though. Wait, wait. So you do or don't think it's going to weaken resolve? I, I don't know. I, I, I think it's way too early to make this pronouncement like some in the media have that it's a total backlash and that it, it fell flat. I mean, you can't say that. You don't know. It's just based on the loudest voices on social media, which you and I know are not representative necessarily of the entire guild. Yeah. The second one is this AI counter, which is a complicated issue because there are many out there. My colleague at Puck, Jonathan Handel, wrote about how the danger in the studio proposal is that it would allow the studios to train AI programs on WGA members' scripts and potentially make movies based on those scripts without writers at all. It does protect writers from getting paid and having a writer on a script or a writer on a movie, but it could open the door to movies themselves being copyrightable, even if they are based on computer-generated scripts. And that is not what the Guild wants. Yeah, it's funny. I felt like the studios met the Guilds on a lot of their AI issues. And that one of training models on scripts is sort of a holdout. But it's a tricky one because the studios own the scripts. And these models are already training on stuff that's on the internet. Yeah. And so I, I just don't feel like that's the one to fight over. Yeah, but it's just so, it's, it's so tough because nobody knows. And yes, you're right. They have already agreed that you have to have an author on a script. 
One of the big concerns is that a screenwriter gets paid less if it's an adaptation, if it's not their original idea. And so you can ensure against that and make sure that also the human gets all the credit for payment, for awards, for all that stuff. And a lot of what's happening with AI right now is sort of people are consulting the models, but they're not writing scripts or anything. And you're not going to outlaw people from just like going to the internet for ideas. Well, it's even unclear whether letting an AI program scoop up and digest all of this copyrighted material is even a violation. My other colleague at Puck, Eric Gardner, has written about that. And I've asked the question, why are the studios not suing these language programs and these AI companies for using their copyrighted materials to produce models? And the question has basically been answered that they don't know that they would win a case like that. I tend to disagree. I think that copyright law sort of needs to be updated for this AI age and that these works potentially could be derivative works. If you are asking a model to create the social network, but about Elon Musk, necessarily the social network is being infringed if it's using that. But it's not clear. And there are some conflicting decisions out there So there's so much of a gray area here that I understand why the Guild is nervous. Of course you understand why they're nervous. Nobody knows, for one, as you point out, nobody knows what the legal theory is around artificial intelligence. There have been a bunch of different court cases. There are going to be a bunch more. Who has to pay for what? We assume that eventually these companies with big models will essentially have to license copyrighted material from owners of different media. But is that going to apply to news? Is that going to apply to photos? Is that going to apply to scripts? Is it going to apply to music, video? How that all works is uncertain. And you want to ask for extra protections to guard against yourself. I mean, that's why AI, I think, has proven to be such a tricky issue is like nobody knows, nobody can see into the future, right? It's not even like streaming where you like kind of know how it works. It's just a question of how big it gets. AI, we're not even sure how it works or how I should say how it will work in the case of film and television. And so you have studios that are trying to create kind of flexibility and optionality and writers that want protections. And it's, it's very hard to bridge that gap. This episode is brought to you by ZipRecruiter. Daylight Saving Time is back. Wait, wasn't that a movie from 2009? Okay, anyway, I do love more hours of daylight. But if you're hiring, it really doesn't matter. Because even though it may feel as if your day is longer, it won't help you find qualified candidates any sooner. There's only one way to do that, ZipRecruiter. Once you post your job, ZipRecruiter sends it to 100 plus job sites and then uses smart technology to find people with the skills and experience to match the position. So spring forward with ZipRecruiter. Four out of five employers get a quality candidate within the first day. Try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash town. Tap the banner to learn more. This episode is brought to you by Empower. You got money questions like, can I retire early? What are my best savings options? Can I afford to pay for my kid's education? Luckily, Empower has all the answers. With Empower's real-time dashboard and real live conversations, you get clarity on your real-life financial goals. So join 18 million Americans and Empower What's Next. Start today at Empower.com. Tap the banner or visit this episode's page to learn more. Sponsored by Empower, not an endorsement or a statement of satisfaction by a client. The transparency issue is a fascinating one. And this one, I think, is the one for the writers to die on the hill on. Because what the studios have offered, and you've written about this, is that they want to give information on who's watching shows over to the guild 
which will be required to keep it in confidence privately. And they will be allowed to come up with a proposal that will then create a success-based residual in the next negotiation, not this one. And that, according to the Guild, and I tend to agree with them, doesn't make any sense. This is when the leverage is at the maximum. Why would they say, okay, we'll take this information now and negotiate what the actual payment will be at a time in three years when we likely will not have the same amount of leverage? Yeah, the studios, I think whether they like it or not, are going to have to come around to the idea that some kind of payment in success model, obviously their resistance to it is that they're overpaying upfront to buy out those rights. And so there, there's some compromise maybe where they can figure out a way to pay a little bit less upfront, but create more incentive models. The funny thing is, if you talk to people at, at the studios, they say, you know, if we want to go back to like just paying in success, that's great because we'll save money because we'll only pay like the 15% of shows that are successes or whatever. But nobody's figured out how to make that work. No, and then Ken Ziffrin did a talk a couple weeks ago where he said his clients prefer the buyout model, prefer getting paid up front for the most part and not getting the success model on the back end because for most of them, the doubles are fine. They don't need the home runs. This one is like, is the trickiest one because it's very hard to rein in costs or get convince people, oh, you've been getting paid this up front. Now you're going to get paid less, even if you're telling them you're going to make more in the end. I think we all agree that some kind of incentive alignment with payment and success makes sense. Well, they want both. Yeah, the the guild wants both. The guild wants both. Sure. They want to keep the cost. (laughs) Of course, who doesn't want to get paid more? But one thing you reported that I thought was interesting, I'm going to challenge you a little bit on this, is you said that Netflix and Ted Sarandos, the co-CEO, has been willing to say yes to what the guilds want. And that is some of the others that have pushed back. And then you had a line in your Bloomberg report that said Netflix is one of the companies least interested in a protracted stoppage. It needs to add millions of customers every quarter, and it can only do that if it has new shows. Is that true? I think Netflix is still the best positioned to ride this out. And that when you count in the fact that there is now no fall season for these broadcast networks, there is a seriously in jeopardy summer movie season and spring and summer movie season because these films are not able to be finished and the summer movies are the province of the traditional studios not netflix if you say okay who benefits if there is no summer movie season it would probably be streaming and who benefits among the streamers probably netflix i still think that netflix is best positioned here to ride this out. And you're saying that they are the most incentivized to make a deal. Well, I don't think those are mutually exclusive. So if there's this narrative that took hold in the first couple of weeks of the strike, where a lot of people were saying Netflix was the lone holdout, and that was utter horseshit. It wasn't true. Like, Well, people still call it the Netflix strike. This is a strike over the Netflix model. A hundred percent. And that's totally fair, right? Like Netflix created a model that has led to this dispute. But Netflix, from a negotiating perspective, was not the one company saying, guys, we can't do a deal. Now, they are better positioned than a lot of their peers because they bank more in advance, because a lot of their programming is international, because they don't rely on movie theaters, all of those things. But what I was trying to say is not that they are weak, but that they're not, as a company, they're not interested 
in having a long strike because Netflix, if you remember, is just a year removed from like the sky is falling, right? You know, they're not growing. The stock price has fallen off a cliff. And their whole mission is to get back to growing at a steady clip and convince Wall Street that there's a lot of room to grow in the future. If they can't make new shows, they're going to face the same crunch of lack of product next year as everyone else. It, it, everyone will have a slightly different flavor, but they'll have that. And unlike a lot of these other businesses, they're a one product company, right? Okay, so Disney will hurt if it doesn't have movies for its studio or if it doesn't have TV shows. But first of all, theme parks, unaffected. Second of all, ESPN and sports, unaffected. And then all of the other things that they do, like their affiliate fees that they get, they're going to get paid that no matter what. And you're not going to see some dramatic increase in cord cutting at this point because there's not new shows on ABC. Oh, well, that's arguable. But and the ad rates, they will be able to charge less if they don't have new programming. Netflix's stock trades on did you add enough customers? And it's going to be very hard for them to add enough customers in April and May of next year if there's nothing new coming out or if they have 30 percent of their slate. I agree with that. I just think that Netflix has other levers, like you mentioned, the international stuff, or they just put suits on all the time, <laughs> all the all suits network. But they and they can create hits out of library stuff that was either a hit or not a hit elsewhere. And that seems to be satisfying to a chunk of their subscribership. Totally. They have a captive audience that is not going anywhere. I'm more talking about the growth part of it. Again, I'm not saying they're the most vulnerable. I'm just saying there's been like this weird narrative that they're the ones that are holding it out. And it's like if you talk to anyone, there was a moment in like late July and early August where Ted Sarandos, co of Netflix, like went on a mission to try to do this thing. The real thing is whether the studios are now going to move on to SAG-AFTRA. They purposely went to the writers first, partially because they were on strike the longest, and partially, I think, because the rhetoric coming out of the actors was so loud and anti-studio. By the way, you notice Fran Drescher, nowhere to be seen past few weeks. The president of SAG-AFTRA, have you seen her lately? She's like a missing person these days. They have definitely silenced her. Our weekly coffee date, it ended. (laughs) But They have definitely put her in some kind of a witness protection for a little while because I think the rhetoric coming out of her was so incendiary that it served its purpose at the beginning. Yes, she riled up the membership. She got a ton of press. My mom knows all the issues at stake in the SAG strike because the nanny was telling everybody on all TV channels. But they, I think, recognized that having Fran out there was probably not the best to get a deal done. And I wonder now if the actors are going to be the next target of the studios now that they can't really seem to go anywhere with the writers. Do you think that after the studios fail with the writers, that the actors are going to be more amenable to a deal? Or will they sit there saying they failed here, they're now coming to us, but right, sloppy seconds. It. Yeah. Yeah. I, I don't I don't know the answer to that. I mean there are different issues at play for both of these guilds. And they could say, okay, let's talk, but just know we are not going to give in places where the writers have drawn a line in the sand. The actor proposal on transparency is actually more aggressive than the writers. They want 2% of revenue. That is one where I I would bet any member of that guild a lot of money that they don't end up getting 2% of streaming revenue. 
Well, it's so hard to calculate that. We've gone over this on the show. And using a third-party measurement service like Parrot Analytics, which doesn't even measure viewership at all. <laughs> well, no, they have they have a consumption metric within their demand metric, but it is not entirely consumption. And it's out of the control of the companies. Why would they pay a percentage of revenue based on a third-party metric that doesn't even accurately portray who's watching? So that, I think you're right. It will never happen. But some kind of a version... Some version of payment and success, as as we said, the studios have to figure this out. I just wonder if strategically it makes sense to do that, or if, like you said, the actors will be like, okay, well, yeah, fine, we'll talk to you, but we're not going to be easier than the guild you just threw up your hands on. The studios had assumed coming into this, I think, that the actors would be the more reasonable or the easier party to do a deal with. And they could very well decide that it's worth going back because the first time around with both guilds, they did have more of a negotiation with the actors. I think that that was the case in the beginning. And then Fran Drescher started calling Bob Iger an imperialist carpetbagger, robber baron, whatever, whatever she said. And then all of a sudden, the, it was the writers that they were going to. All right. So have you revised your prediction on when this is going to end? based on the recent developments? Because I, I'm sure you are like me. Everyone asks the first thing they say when they talk to you. So when's this ending? And I have stuck to my mid-September, late September end of the strike since pretty much the beginning. I thought after Labor Day, they would come to their senses and all do a deal that makes this work. I am now officially moving my prediction into October. Big move. The line has shifted. I think this week was really bad. And after Labor Day, the studios are going to start delaying movies. They're going to essentially start writing off the rest of the year. What about you? Are you moving your prediction? Whenever people ask me that, the two things I say are, I have no idea, but I predicted mid-October at the beginning. And so I'm just going to stick with that. And so I'll stick with it for now because I would like to be optimistic and believe that there will be reason and people will see a benefit in getting the deal done. It's probably now a little bit soon for both to get resolved, but I'm not ready to contemplate the world that that some are that this will drag into to 2024. It's getting bad. Like people are getting fired. They have no income. You know, there's food banks now. Like it's getting really bad. Yeah, it is not pretty. This is going to be a really uplifting episode for everyone. <laughs> I got a, I did get a, I did get a couple of notes after my newsletter yesterday saying I'm now I'm depressed. Although I think most of those people were probably depressed about this before that. Yeah, so. that's not our fault. This is depressing <laughs> shit, man. Craig asked us if there was any good news in the industry. And I'm like, oh, live music. Yeah. People can go see Beyonce this weekend, but maybe not if you're out of work and you don't have 500 bucks. All right, Lucas, thanks for coming on. By the way, plug away. We're doing a live show at your conference. Uh, your bar mitzvah slash media conference is in October. Give us a plug. It's called Screen Time. Same name as my newsletter. Uh, many of the figures we talked about on this show will be there. Ted Sarandos from Netflix, Donna Langley from NBC Universal, uh, Issa Rae, the creator of Insecure. You're burying the lead. Our we... boss, Bill Simmons. Oh, Bill yes. Simmons will be there. Yes. But yes, you and I will be taping a, a live show uh, Thursday morning, October 12th to kick off the festivities at the event. Uh, you should buy your ticket or more likely get your company to, to buy your ticket for you. 
And we will make sure to trash everybody who is appearing later at the conference so they're super angry when they get on stage with you. Specifically with me, so that they <laughs> come on with that posture where I, I start on the defensive instead of the offensive. Yes, exactly. We'll just I'll just go on like a 30-minute rant about Netflix transparency, and then Ted will arrive. Yeah, you can crap all over YouTube, too. We've got that. We've awesome, got Neil awesome. from there. So. Awesome. All right. Thank you, Lucas. Thanks, Matt. All right. We're back with the call sheet. Craig, today I'm not doing a prediction. I am doing a defense of a previous prediction because I am refusing to accept defeat here. This is very Trumpy. I understand. <laughs> I was going to say, recount the votes. <laughs> Find the votes. My prediction from Thursday, which is that uh, I took the under on the Gran Turismo $15 million tracking. It came in at $17.4 million, but... What we didn't know at the time was that Sony was going to pull a total cheap manipulation. They pushed it for two weeks, probably to get away from Barbenheimer, and they probably saw that the low tracking was embarrassing. This is a Sony game franchise, and the movie wasn't going to open very high. So they did two additional weeks of preview screenings, and then they added in $5.3 million worth of preview screenings into the opening weekend total. And it came out at 17.4 million, which then beats the tracking and beats Barbie, which only got to 15.1 million in its sixth weekend. I highlighted this in my newsletter for Puck last night. And then today, Warner Brothers basically called out Sony and was like, no, 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 no. Barbie is the actual winner. You cannot put five weeks of previews into a number for the weekend. The traditional is you can put Thursday night previews. And sometimes you can stretch it for the full week. Studios have done that. They did it on Mission Possible, a bunch of others. But to put five weeks of previews into an opening weekend number is total shenanigans. Sony should be ashamed of themselves. <laughs> wow. So you call BS. They, they grease the wheels here. They put their finger on the scale. Only people in Hollywood care about this, but the number one movie in the at the box office is a big deal. I guarantee you we will see commercials this week from Sony touting Gran sure. Turismo as the number one movie in America. They can go to the leadership in Japan and say, listen, we took your game franchise and we turned it into a number one movie. And the only reason they got to that number was because they manipulated the numbers. Tom Rothman, you basically said, find the votes. So you're refusing to concede on your incorrect prediction. No, I'm not. I will not concede. Okay. I, I my, that one will go in my winner column. And you know what? If someone wants to challenge me in court, I'm willing to take this to the Supreme Court of Hollywood box office authorities. Sony is also fudging on the budget number. I have been told by multiple sources. They claim this movie cost 60. I have heard from very credible sources that the green light budget was 70. Two million, and that it actually. I have a huge budget. gripe with budgets. I hate how nebulous budgets are. No one know. actually knows how much a movie costs. It pisses me off. It does, and it's unfortunately in the studio's control. The theaters don't get to see what the budgets are. It's hard to lie about box office because the theaters have this information as well, and Comscore has it, and the other tracking firms ultimately get that information. But budget information, you can kind of lie. There are a number of people who know it, so if you're really lying, it will come out. Like the people that saw my, my item last night in the newsletter, 
came to me and were like, you know, they were lying about the budget as well. I have not run that past Sony. Let's, I would love to hear them and their vociferous defense of the $60 million budget, but I've heard it's much more. And they are definitely pulling a fast one on this box office reportings. And uh, Warner's is just sitting there pissed off and putting out their own statements saying that they're, they're not going to buy it. It's such a petty Hollywood problem that nobody actually cares about. <laughs> I love it. The Hollywood ship is sinking and we're fighting about who's number one. <laughs> right. Who made $15 million or $14 million in August? Yeah. Uh, well, that's what people fight about. All right. That's the show for today. I want to thank my guest, Lucas Shaw. I want to thank producer Craig Horbeck. I want to thank our editor, Jesse Lopez. And I want to thank you. We will see you later this week. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You might say all kinds of stuff when things go wrong, but these are the words you really need to remember. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. They've got options to fit your unique insurance needs, meaning you can talk to your agent to choose the coverage you need, have coverage options to protect the things you value most, file a claim right on the State Farm mobile app, and even reach a real person when you need to talk to someone. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there.